Now, um, you've, you were really interested in the responses we had around COVID. 20,000 lives saved with our response. Great discussion, says Chris, about our COVID response. I have found it distressing to hear and see the disgruntled and divisive rhetoric from some. Of course, it wasn't perfect. It is rare that huge decisions made in an emergency are. But we should listen, learn, reflect, improve without unnecessary blame and recriminations. It's a long journey. And I have to address the feedback coming in. It's really all been about Raven Can and his Swingbridge situation. Wallace, it's true. Unbelievable. Karen says, if you think it could be vertigo, try putting an earplug in one ear only before walking the bridge. My husband was able to overcome this challenge when out tramping. Rob says, I find looking up scarier at high too. Also worked a four-hour week. Thank you. Um, Try looking ahead, someone says, as you walk across. It's also a challenge for me to walk across swing bridges at height. Another one here. I'm a climber and I get frightened of heights, but it's only if I haven't been climbing for a while. The trick is to desensitize yourself and walk across swing bridges as much as possible, Raven. (laughs) <laughs> is that an, is that is that something you can do? Do more of it? I I don't think that's a possibility. So the um uh yeah, I've heard that thing where you're meant to, you know, acclimatize yourself and and just keep jumping in. But like this is what it's like for me. You know Spaghetti Junction, how there's yeah. some uh roads that just go over and you've got motorways passing beneath you. Even some of walking on some of those roads which are roads made of concrete, you know, in in a city um, because they're so far above this uh, river of traffic that I can see below, it happens to me there too. The legs, the, you know, your thighs just become jelly. And it doesn't matter wow. where I look. Um, you know, Goodness. I can't fool myself into looking up or straight or. We've had uh, heaps of response. Yeah. We're going to come back to this, Raven, uh, next week. I'll let you know. But one more here. Thanks. I, I didn't know until I crossed a swing bridge and I got to the middle and I froze. And I just what Raven's talking about. And I'm a hypnotherapist. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, but haven't tried crossing another high swing bridge, so I must test it out. You're on the panel, RNZ National. Wonderful to have your company. Uh, we, yes, Sally. I, I've just got a question for the climber. Um, it sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. Why would a climber climb? Be afraid Why of heights. Why would you be a climber if you're afraid of heights? I don't get it. If you're still listening, text me. Thank 2101. You. Wind the clock back to 2016. The state of Victoria in Australia was lagging behind New Zealand in the start-up sector. We have a similar population and similar global profile as Victoria, but New Zealand, it was ahead. Fast forward to this year. Victoria's startup sector is now valued at eight billion dollars. New Zealand now one point three billion. So why have we fallen so far behind? Very interesting piece this. Marion Johnson is the chief executive of the Ministry of Awesome, an organization that supports startup businesses. Marion Kiota. Kia ora. How are you doing? Very, is this true? That disparity is wide. Victoria has overtaken us where we were once level pegged. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's pretty depressing stuff. But I think, you know, quite frankly, I think it's a real um, opportunity for some optimism because if they can do it, we certainly can. Um, they, they have the same distance to market. They have the same, you know, rough profile. 
Um, and there's, there's simply no reason why we can't do exactly the same thing. Sally? What sort of businesses are you talking about? So when we talk about startups, we're talking about what we call high-growth startups, and that means that they have innovation at their core, and they're essentially businesses that are going global from day one. So those would be things like software platforms, hardware, um, basically such unique and disruptive business models that there's a, a huge addressable market around the world and that they're completely scalable. Yeah, Raven. So is it just about um, spending somehow from from the government to fund uh, startups? I think it was about a, a very specific vision for where they wanted Victoria to go. They wanted Victoria to become a startup city and to be an innovation wow. city for all of Australia. And they knew that if they did that, they would be transforming their economy because of course, with that sort of innovation-led economy, you also have really high-value jobs. This means the GDP goes up, your productivity goes up, and you know it's it's obviously something that attracts a lot of talent as well. Not to mention being you know incredible for the economy. So once they decided that that was absolutely what they were going to do, what they did that was really quite different from what we've done is they've created an agency called LaunchVic. And LaunchVic is the agency that powered this transformation. Obviously, they didn't do it by themselves, but they they were the the lead agency driving the transformation. And I think there's some key things that are very different about LaunchVic that we can really learn from. And the first one is that the agency is not a government agency. It is empowered by government. It's, it's given its mandate by government but it is uh, a completely independent agency that's run by high-growth startup people, people who have that experience taking products to market, building unicorns, um, and understand exactly what kind of headwinds a high-growth startup founder well, this faces is something all that, the way through. This is something that we could have here, our version of LaunchVic. Why I bring this up, uh, Marion, is because you mm-hmm. know we're, we are a nation of people who have dreams. We are a nation of small business owners or small business people, and I have uh, I understand it is while it's easy to start a business here, it's quite hard to get a startup up and functioning for the mid to long term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the biggest challenges that you have in in New Zealand, I I totally agree. That's why I do what I do at Ministry of Awesome and the whole team and and so many other organizations like this and a lot of government organizations like this are really focused on the same vision of, you know, basically growing the New Zealand economy through startup innovation. Um, And the, the way that we need to do this is we need to take a completely coordinated approach, um, and we also need to take an approach which, in my view, has to be top of the pipeline. So what that means is that we simply do not have enough uh, founders who are thinking huge, who are thinking madly ambitious, who are thinking global from day one. Um, that's not to say we don't have a ton of innovators. We absolutely do. But Basically, startups are not a thing here, whereas in Australia, they have become a thing. And obviously, in many countries around the world, startups are a big deal. You're always hearing about these massive valuations and so on. Because startups aren't a thing, that bold ambition is not necessarily as high as it needs to be. So we don't have enough people coming into the pipeline. And then at the critical period where they need to raise capital, we don't have enough capital going Um, to them. So to help help make that happen, do we need a Minister of Startup and Innovation? 
Well, I mean, the, there's a really cool little organization uh, that was uh, created by the, well, I don't know if it's created by, given a, given a mandate by government, and it was called the Startup Advisors Council. And I was on the Startup Advisors Council with six other um, leaders of the whole high-growth startup ecosystem, and we wrote a report called the Upstart um, Report. And in that report, it talks about needing a, basically a head of startups. And when we presented that to the government, everybody was incredibly in favor. Obviously, they'd asked for the report, so there was interest, there was buy-in already from government. Um, And regardless of which party you're talking about, both parties have been very supportive of this. But, of course, this report came out right before campaigning began. And so, therefore, you know, I wrote this article to say, don't forget about this. You know, as soon as you get in, let's push the pedal down. Let's make this happen. Nice to have you on the program, Marianne. A bit of response on that. So hopefully we can return to this issue, uh, important issue. Yeah, kia ora. Marianne Johnson there from the Ministry of Awesome. Uh, John says, Wallace, New Zealand does not support R&D. It's that simple. Successive governments have never supported Supported it like other countries. Peter says, My son has done four startups, one in Australia, three in Singapore. Each one has sold for millions. He would never do it here. Oh, what a shame. It is a shame. Uh, 15 to 5, the panel. Now, the the Takapuna to Milford Beach walkway. A summer treat for many in Auckland. Stop for a swim at Minnehaha Beach along the way, but now you'll see a big fence. Property owners have blocked off a section of the walkway that goes through their property. It's on a beautiful section of costs that surely everyone should be able to enjoy, right? And it brings up the question, what level of control is fair when accessing beautiful public spaces? And do we ever have any rights to pass through someone else's land? With us is Christine King uh, from, or director at Duncan King Law, who's kindly given us a few minutes for us. Kia ora, Christine. Kia ora, lovely to be here. Thanks for your time. A pleasure. So can we ever pass through private land? Great question. So I think a few of us recently have probably had a few politicians maybe coming up to our doors and, and uh, knocking on them. <laughs> and the example is actually exactly the same. So it was a good timing with this question. We've actually got an implied license where there is a path to go onto a person's property. So that's how people do come to your front door. And in the case previously with the Takapuna Milford track, we've had public being able to access across private land. But the tricky thing is when we actually lose that permission. So uh, that's what we often call like a limit on um, that implied license. And if someone tells you you can't be there anymore, it's what we call an express limitation. You've you've lost that permission. And it appears with that uh, big fence that's gone up in the signage, that's that's what's occurred. How interesting, Sally. Now, does the Queen's chain cover this area? How does that rule work? So interesting question. So my understanding uh, with this property is the track was actually completely across private land. Um, And that's how, in this case, the property owners are able to put the fence up and then deny access with that signage. So Queen's Chain isn't coming into it. Oh, I see. Raven. Uh, What about a tunnel? What about an overbridge? (laughs) What about a swing a bridge? A giant, oh giant Persmex tube. Definitely not a swing bridge. 
Well, I have to say, uh, quite a few people who've had sort of um, tunnelling around um, Waterview at the moment, uh, tunnelling in and around and under their properties, uh, it, it, you can't just do that. So there still actually has to be um, some permission. So whether you've given permission with some sort of registration or element on your title or because permission is actually sought and potentially bought from you. And I think that's what the, the property owner in this case is trying to do. They're looking for that heritage status to be lifted in exchange for the pathway. Because, uh, Christine, if we have uh, listeners from the UK, English listeners, they will tell you that in their country they can stroll over wherever the heck they like. They can stroll over people's farmland, hike along certain <laughs> private pathways. They, they have a right to walk. They have a right to roam, don't they? have that right to ramble, I think. Yeah, that's to talk it, about right to well. ramble. Exactly. The right to ramble, which sounds very, very fun. We do, in a, we do have a, a similar, again, an implied licence, but in a, a very simple form here, except the fact we do recognise through the Trespass Act that that right can be taken away from oh. us. Exactly. So sections three and four of uh, three and four of the Trespass Act come into play there. So when someone tells you to get off their land and not come back, then we're looking at an act of trespass. So uh, unfortunately, oh, in this case here, yeah, if we ignore the signage, we've, we've got a problem under the Act. So I came from a farm and it used to be really annoying and actually it was dangerous. The odd person would just open mm. a gate, go for a walk, mm-hmm. leave the gate mm-hmm. open. The stock would go everywhere. They'd get cattle with sheep and leave gates and onto roads. Um, are you saying that they can potentially do that? Sort of. Okay, so when we were talking about an implied licence, it's subject to what I mentioned was express limitation. So signage that says you're not allowed to come onto this property or you're not allowed to open a gate. But there's also things called implied limitation. So I couldn't rock up to your front door with the intention of um, hurting you or stealing your, your, your cows or anything like that. So it's a really interesting dynamic of express things that remove our permission, but also potentially implied things depending on what you're thinking of doing on the land. But one easy way to, to get round an issue is to simply have signage as in you know, oh, yes. yeah, no one's allowed on this property. Trespassers will be hopefully not shot. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Quite a bit of interest from the public on this one, uh, Christine. So uh, it's something that we may well uh, return to. But for now, Christine, um, kia ora, thank you. Uh, oh, that's Christine King, a director at Duncan King Law uh, there. Uh, just a couple of pieces of feedback. Uh, Wallace, I've, I have perpetual access across my neighbour's driveway, his land, because I have an easement and I own the section at the back. Um, one thing I miss about the UK is footpaths. You can go anywhere and people are respectful of private land. It's so mean-spirited not letting people walk through your land when, when it doesn't impact you at all is uh, somebody's point of view there. Well, yeah. sometimes it does impact things, but I hear what you're saying. And we've got, what, about 13 national parks and lots of reserves, so have a go at them. Yeah, very good point. Sally Winley and Raven Can on the panel. Uh, happy Friday to you. Now, we talked about 
the Rand Furley Shield yesterday. It drew a response from many who've had their brush with it. We had Jane, for example, who had it in her home and took so much care of it by placing it upon soft furnishings. Her words. A far cry from the way it's been treated these days. Broken in half, was photographed with the white powder on it in a couple of lines. Could be plaster said the restorer. Oh, with us is a high-end restorer, Dr. William Cottrell. Dr. Cottrell, welcome. Oh, kia ora. Now, kia ora, William. Us. Now, you say, you said to us, look, you couldn't, care, you couldn't care less about the rugby, but you do care about the shield. Why are you so outraged? Um, oh, well, yeah, true. Um, I was forced to play rugby at... Um, Boarding school and I hated it, and so now, <laughs> um, long time after, I just don't even follow it at all. But the um, Ramfordy Shield's sort of obviously, even I know this, one of New Zealand's most venerated sports trophies, and um, you get thousands of people fighting for this thing every year, you know, out in the rugby field. And so, what they're really fighting for is the heritage and the history and this venerated object. But what I discovered. Um, reading stuff, I think, maybe, uh, was that the shield had been restored, and I'm sort of doing ear brackets here with one hand, um, and about 10 years ago, somebody had replaced the entire wooden shield with a brand new one, and I'm told that it's now, well, I learn, um, it's now 40 millimetres thick, so it's a great slab of wood. So most of the shield has actually been lost, where it's sort of like a George Washington's axe, you know, the, uh. Maybe the plaques on the front and uh, original, but the original shield, um, I gather, is 119 years old. So, the the point of this is that people are arguing over a broken piece of wood that's actually only about a decade old. So it's not the original piece of wood at all. Now, part of my issue is about saving heritage, and I really argue that um, people are they they going into battle on the rugby field for an object that they think every other famous rugby player in New Zealand for the last 119 years has actually handled, touched, lusted after, fought after, you know, all of that. Thousands, millions of hours in the pub talking about it, you know, and in fact, it's not actually the thing at all. It's just a brand new piece of wood. Oh, so, what a letdown. William, to... stay there. I want to bring in, I'll bring in, um, yeah. we've got someone else on the line, but I'll bring in Raven. Sure. So, so is there a, a question? Is this sort of a, a Raiders of the Lost Ark sort of question? Where the that other ancient piece of wood is? <laughs> well, I feel I'm like sure I'm speaking to Indiana Jones it. here. <laughs> the the problem with this is New Zealand's a bit thin on heritage anyway, and then we kind of do something as as kind of like just silly and thoughtless as to just think it doesn't matter, it's the same shape and it's a piece of wood and who cares? Well, you know, it's it's just not the same thing. It's just like, you know, it's like, why don't we all just buy fake art? Because you don't need the real painting if you've just got a good copy of one. You know, it's that sort of thing. You want the real thing. So this isn't the real thing, even though parts of it are. Well, William... If you put it on the scales, most of it has been weight, just weight for weight, oh. has been lost. You're letting the nation down with your reality there, William. Uh, well, but you, I'm you... sorry to say so. But the other stupid thing was that it broke largely because it was so heavy. Oh. If it was a lighter piece of wood, well, it, it it's like if you drop a wooden crate on the floor from a couple of metres up, it won't 
probably would stand it. You can drop a cardboard carton, Got it. much lighter thing, William, and nothing would happen we're to it. We're yes. going to continue the, the, the round of discussion with our other guests, but for now, thank you very much. That's William Cottrell who says, look, um, get over it. It's 10 years old, a piece of wood, you know. Uh, it's not that sort of venerable uh, slab of wood. But nonetheless... Nonetheless, with us is Glennis, who's going to tell us what it means to some young people. Kia ora, Glennis. Kia ora. Now, tell us what it meant to the group that you were involved with. Well, a, a few years ago, probably about eight or nine years ago, I worked with SWPIC, uh, which is a South Pacific uh, community organisation in Tokoroa. And um, one of the team who had won the shield uh, was a relative of a group of people we worked with. And the group of people we worked with were young people that we were um, training to be peer supporters and um, good representatives of their community. And um, we had been on a camp and just by chance one of the members of the as I said, the uh, team that had won it brought the shield along for these young people to look at and to give them aspiration, to give them dreams. The, the aim of the camp was to dream build, to give these young people something to work towards. And when they saw the Ranfurly shield, they were absolutely thrilled, delighted, because it meant something to them. They yeah. all knew somebody who had um, worked hard really worked hard to be on the team that won that shield. That's amazing. Glennis, Sally's here. Glennis, how did you react when you saw or heard what has happened to the shield? I was really sad because I knew that it would reverberate in Tokoro where where all of these young people now are adults and they probably play the game and their relatives could have been in the team that won it and I know that During that camp, they each held the shield and had their photo taken, and they were beaming. And I know it meant a huge amount to them, and I know they'll be feeling like I did when I heard about it. Glennis, thank you so much for that, Uh, the the, the reverence uh, that the shield means this time, particularly young Kiora. So that's Glennis, and that's uh, William Cottrell there. Raven Can, does the shield mean anything to you? Uh, emotionally, yeah. like I, I'm not even sure that we need uh, that level of reverence to just for it not to break. You just have to have the basic, you know, respect for an object without trying to, um, you know, do, do karate on it or something. So, so I don't know how that happened. I mean, is but I am very curious where that original wood is. If like, yes. who's the last team that had it when where it was this original, mm. you know, the the old lock. And uh, that's probably some detective work that, that can be done if if we know that it was, you know, a decade or so ago. It's a podcast. Um, I'm and, sure and who someone knows, what, knows where what, it is. Well, bound to. It'll be in someone's garage, you know, yeah. in, in a man yes, cave. Yeah. Uh, or a person cave. Well, I'm a visitor from Hawke's Bay, <laughs> and I have held the shield in my youth. You have. And the magpies were an institution. They were the biggest part of our community. And I'm really peeved off at those rugby players. For you, here's some hearts, Sally. Well spoken. Raven can Sally Wendy, fantastic. Ayana is my producer. Thanks, Ayana, for the wonderful week. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next. 
I'm back with you for the most haunted at 3.45 on Monday. <laughs>